Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The Edinburgh International Book Festival lives on, and some of its most Ken Speckle figures are with us in this strange year as well. One of them is a man who normally lurks in the author's yurt when he's not featuring in a sold-out main tent event. His crime novels sell in their millions, and the number of languages in which his books have been published are testament to his global appeal. He was born a Fifer, but he's a long-time denizen of Scotland's capital city, and he and his wife spent some years in London and in France as he honed his skills as a full-time novelist. Allegedly, one of the jobs he did before becoming a publishing phenomenon was as an alcohol researcher. His favourite Edinburgh bar might argue that he's still dabbling in that particular trade. His most famous character, one who's been a stalwart of many novels, radio and television series and, and the theatre as well, is Inspector Rebus. Rebus, having accidentally become a pensioner, and some of us know all about that, um, is technically now retired. But you can't keep a good detective down, which is why John Rebus will come amongst us again this October in a new novel from Ian, A Song of the Dark Times. Having been fortunate to have a sneak peek, I can confirm that John Rebus is as contrary and compelling as ever. He's grown into his grumpiness. Meanwhile, already in print is an, a very early novel, West Wind, which rose without too much trace in 1990 and was the subject of so many edits that the author rather lost interest in it. However, he's been prompted to revisit it and to add a dash of polish and he's been persuaded to have it republished. Since its themes embrace American troops being pulled out of Europe, the USA's relationship with the wider world in, in some kind of doubt, spy satellites circling the globe, you might think that West Wind is exactly the right book for today's difficulties. So it hardly takes a high-performance sleuth to work out that our guest this evening is Ian Rankin. Welcome, Ian. Thank you. Great introduction. Thank you. Um, Let's just talk a minute about Rebus ageing. You know, you could imagine why I'm slightly fixated about that particular <laughs> aspect of it. Yep, yep. Um, I wondered how difficult it was to, to flesh out his ageing persona, but still keep him with enough intellectual rigour to sustain the narrative. Well, I, I mean, as you will appreciate, folk of a certain age are pretty intellectually rigorous. Um, they've got a whole lifetime of learning behind them. He's got a whole lifetime of learning behind him. Um, he's, you know, he's no deed yet and he feels that he's still got a place in the world and he's still got something to prove to the world. Um, what he's not got is a job, and that's been stripped away from him. As you've suggested, it wasn't his idea to go. He was made to retire. Um, and the hardest job I've got as a writer is to, is to place him within a crime story that seems at least vaguely realistic that he would end up there. Because, he, it, because yeah. he's no longer got a, a, a warrant card or anything, and he no longer gets uh, asked to help solve crimes. You go over this, of course, I mean, we won't go into too much detail about the book because I don't want to spoil the plot, but, but you go over that particular difficulty this time by having him get involved in a crime that involved a member of his family. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to take him out of his comfort zone um, and I wanted to take me out of my comfort zone, so I thought I'm going to take him away from Edinburgh. So there is no Oxford bar in this book. Um, he doesn't get a chance to visit. There are bars, but not the Oxford bar. There's nothing, once you get past the first few pages, there's nothing that Rebus does that is actually set in Edinburgh. I take him way up north. Originally, I was going to take him to Tongue, 
If you go back to the, the last few books, there are mentions, fleeting mentions of his daughter. Um, and she lives in Tongue, which, as you and I know, is a real place on the north coast of Scotland. Yeah. But when I haven't started the first draft of the book, I then drove to Tongue to take a look. And I thought, oh, no, this isn't right. This, this won't do um, for various reasons. It was a bit too big and bustling, too much stuff going on. And so I went a few miles east and invented a place called Never. And that's where the... So the, the story is set in a fictitious village, a hamlet, um, that isn't quite tongue. But there are, of course, still very potent Edinburgh references. And I have to say to you, I mean, you talk, you're talking about going up to tongue to do some serious research. Um, the baddie, the arch baddie in the Rebus Books cafeteria is now in a rather a rather posh pad in the quarter mile uh, district in Edinburgh. And so too are you. Mm. So, I mean, presumably you did that bit of research just by wandering around your own living room. <laughs> no, because Cafferty lives in a lovely modern three-storey triplex apartment, um, probably with a big roof terrace and a, a jacuzzi. And I'm in one of the older buildings. So um, uh, I've not been in one of those new apartments for quite some time. So it's, but I can look out my window and basically look at the kind of place where he's living. So yes, yeah. there is that. It, I think it is slightly worrying that I seem to, my trajectory in my real life seems to be getting closer to Cafferty, the villain, and further away from Rebus. I was going to ask you about that because I wondered how reluctant, I mean, we, we were all expecting that Rebus might go when he retired, um, but he's back in Cafferty's obviously back badder than ever. Um, so were you reluctant to let go of these guys? I mean, are they so much a part of your life now that you can't lose them? No, I wasn't reluctant to part with them. Um, the retirement age said that Rebus was coming to the end of his years after book 17, Exit Music, so off he rode into the, the distance and I went on my merry way to create new characters and start new projects. And something just, you know, there was a plot that demanded a retired cop. And I thought, well, I've got one of those. <laughs> I know the very so, man. Yes, exactly. And it was a cold case unit and, I, and it was staffed by retired detectives and I thought, this is perfect for Rebus. This is the sort of thing he would want to do because he really doesn't want to retire or get too far away from the job. So I found a way to bring him back and having brought him back, he kind of brought Cafferty with him. Uh, and the, the big question I ask myself when I start a new project is, is almost always, is this a story for Rebus? Can he still be contained within this story? And is he still the best person to tell this story? And so far, the answer to that has always been yes. But as you've suggested, the years are catching up with them. Sure. Not as fast as us, I've got to say, because I have slowed the Thanks clock. Thanks for the us. I have slowed the clock uh, quite considerably with Rebus. I wouldn't like to top up in my head how old he actually is yeah. uh, in human years. Um, but in fictional years, and from my mind, he's somewhere in his late 60s. Uh, and so he's still physically able to get about, but I've given him COPD, which is something you don't recover from. Um, so and he's you've in, got him to flit as well. He's in managed decline. And at the very start of this book, I, there's a wee trick that I played early on. I thought I was playing on my publisher and my agent because nobody had seen the book until I showed it to them, which is that in the first few pages, Rebus' flat is being emptied by Siobhan Clark, his one-time colleague. And I was thinking, hee hee, my agent and publisher will think I've done away with them because they hadn't seen any inkling of the book, no right. plot, no nothing until I sent them the entire manuscript. Listen, this might be a good, minute, a good moment just to 
to get a feel for it because he, he moves into a ground floor flat and as you say, um, D.I. Clark is, is, is helping him out. So give us a wee flavour yeah. of it. Yeah, so I mean, right from the get-go, I thought Rebus has got COPD. He lives up two storeys in a tenement in Edinburgh. He's not going to cope with that anymore. So he's going to have to move. Um, but he's not going to want to move very far. And in fact, he moves basically to the ground floor. In the um, same building? In the same building, in the same block. So I don't have to scout out a new area of town for him to be living in. So you don't need to know much more than that. Um, Siobhan has taken some time off work from, there's a kind of juicy murder inquiry, but she's taken time off to help Rebus move. And so she's missing out on all this juicy murder. Um, and he centered, look, I'm fine, you go back. Rebus had to give a slight tug on Brillo's lead. Brillo is his dog. Having been for their evening walk to the meadows, the dog had made for the tenement's main door. We're both going to have to get used to this, Rebus said, pushing open the gate. But trust me, in time, you can get used to just about anything. He had managed to avoid looking up at the curtainless window of his old living room. When he unlocked the door to his new flat, he caught a slight aroma beneath the smell of fresh paint, the merest trace of the previous occupant. It wasn't really perfume, it was a blend of who they'd been and the life they had lived. He had a note of Mrs. Mackay's new address in Australia in case the redirection service failed. He had left something similar in his old flat. He had an inkling it had been bought to be let out to students. No real surprise there. Marchmont had always been student turf, the university just the other side of the meadows. Rebus had only very occasionally had to complain about a noisy party, even then not for several years. Were students cut from different cloth these days? Less rowdy, more, well, studious. Walking into the living room, maneuvering between boxes, he realized his computer had yet to be unpacked. No rush. They weren't doing the broadband for another couple of days. At Siobhan's suggestion, he had one night begun composing a list of people he needed to notify of his changed circumstances. It hadn't even covered half a sheet. And come to think of it, when was the last time he'd seen it? He could hear Brillo in the kitchen, feasting on dry food and fresh water. Rebus hadn't bothered with dinner. He never seemed particularly hungry these days. There were a few bottles of beer in the kitchen, several bottles of spirits sitting on the shelf of the alcove adjacent to the window. A couple of nice malts, but he wasn't really in the mood. Music, though. He should select something special. He remembered moving into the upstairs flat with Rona half a lifetime ago. He'd had a portable record player then and had put on the second Rolling Stones album, grabbing Rona and dancing her around the vast seeming room. Only later had the walls begun to close in. When he peered at the spines of his LPs, he saw that they weren't in anything like the same order as upstairs. Not that there had been any real sense of cataloguing, it was more that he'd known pretty much where he'd find whatever he wanted to hear. Instead of the stones, he decided on Van Morrison. Aye, you'll do, he said to himself. Having eased the needle onto the vinyl, he stepped back. The record skipped. He looked down at the floor, loose floorboard. He placed his foot on it again and the same thing happened. He stabbed a finger at the offender. You're on my list now, pal, he warned it keeping his footsteps soft as he retreated to his chair. It wasn't long before Brillo curled up on the floor next to his feet. Rebus had promised himself that he would unpack a few more boxes before bedtime, but he realised there was no urgency. When his phone buzzed, he checked the screen before answering. Deborah Quant. He'd asked her a while back if they were courting. 
She'd replied they were friends with benefits, which seemed to suit both of them just fine. All right, Deb, you settling in? I thought you might have popped round to check. Busy day, mostly thanks to your lot. I'm long retired, Deb, he paused. I'm guessing this is a Saudi student. Police and Procurator Fiscal don't seem to trust me to establish cause of death anymore. You reckon pressure's been applied? Aye, from all sides. Government here and in London, plus our friends in the media. Added to which, Muslim burials usually take place within two or three days. The embassy are pushing for that to happen. That's handy for whoever killed him. If you can't keep the body for future examination, which I've explained till I'm blue in the face. <laughs> so it's a full tourniquet, eh? I take it you didn't find anything out of the ordinary? Thin-bladed knife, four to six inches. Did you know what they were doing? Went for the neck rather than the chest, the abdomen or stomach. I'm not 100% sure what that tells us, but then that's not my job. Angle of incision suggests someone of similar height and probably right-handed. Can I assume you've been discussing it with Siobhan? She's champing at the bit, but she's a loyal friend too. I've told her I'll be fine from here in. So where are you right now? Chair in the living room, Brillo at my feet, and you've got the hi-fi set up, so all's, well, so all's well with the world. Will I see you tomorrow? Ah, I'll try. You work too hard. He listened to her laughter. It was the right move to make, John. You do know that, don't you? Ah, for the sake of my lungs, maybe. Try spending a day without them. Give Brillo a scratch behind the ears from me. We'll catch up soon. Night, Deb. And then she was gone. She lived less than a mile away in a modern block where minimalism ruled. Her possessions were few because there was nowhere to keep them. No Edinburgh press or understairs cupboard, no nooks and crannies, just clean lines that repelled the very notion of clutter. Her mortuary office was the same. No files were allowed to linger long on her desk. Rebus thought again of the books he'd decided he couldn't live without, even if he would never read them. The albums he played maybe once or twice a decade but still clung to. The boxes of case files that seemed a veritable part of him, like an extra limb. Why would he part with them when he had a spare bedroom no overnight guest ever graced? His only family consisted of his daughter and granddaughter and they never opted to stay. That was why he ditched the old bed and replaced it with a two-seater sofa, leaving space for more bookshelves the suitcase he doubted he would ever use, and his second-blessed record player, the same one he'd had when dancing with Rona that first night. It no longer worked, but he reckoned he could find someone to fix it. He would put it on the list. When he went into the kitchen to make a mug of tea, he examined central heating timer. Mrs Mackay had left the instruction manual, but it looked straightforward enough. Heating bills are quite reasonable, she told him, but then she'd always opted for another layer of wool rather than an extra degree on the thermostat. He wondered if her various cardies, pullovers and shawls had accompanied her to Australia. Wouldn't bet against it. While the kettle boiled, he walked into the main bedroom. With a double bed plus his old wardrobe and chest of drawers, floor space was limited. Siobhan had helped him make up the bed, only having to shift Brillo half a dozen times in the process. Tell me he doesn't sleep next to you, she'd said. Course not, Rebus had lied. The dog was watching now from the hallway. Rebus checked his watch. Soon enough, he said. Just one more mug of tea and maybe another record, eh? He wondered how many times he'd wake up in the night not knowing the new route to the bathroom. Maybe he'd leave the hall light on. Aye, or stop drinking bloody tea, he muttered to himself, heading back to the kitchen. <laughs> the, the, the two things about, <laughs> about that particular passage, Jean. One is that um, if, if you've never read a, a Rebus, 
you've managed to introduce all the characters there, all the main characters, but you've but in a way that we don't really need to know all the hinterland. You know from what Deb Quant's saying that she's a pathologist. You know that mm. Siobhan used to work with him. You know all of these things. The bit that the bit that I couldn't cope with, however, was the dog. I mean, Brillo gets left for a ridiculous amount of time in this new book, and and I can't concentrate on the plot for thinking, is nobody going to go home and feed the bloody dog? I know. And the other thing that, that, appealed, that appealed to me when I was reading it out was that was just my experience of moving from a big house to a wee flat, get, ditching half the records, ditching yeah. half the books, deciding what you couldn't live without, furniture that didn't quite fit. All the things Rebus is going through were things I'd, be, I'd gone through a year ago. Um, but I've never owned a dog. And Brillo was brought into the books because I did a book that had the word dog in the title, Even Dogs in the Wild. And I thought maybe Rebus comes across a stray dog and takes it in and then spends the rest of the book trying to ditch the dog or give it, pass it on to someone and nobody will take it. So being a big softy, he keeps it. And it has been a problem. Because yes, when Rebus goes away, something has to happen to the dog. Um, but that's quite fun. Given, you know, giving yourself wee challenges like that can be quite fun. Given Rebus COPD is a challenge for me because I've got to, what can he do and not do now? And it changes the whole story that you're telling and the way you tell the story. Uh, giving him a dog, giving him a dependent like that means that it changes his attitude to the case. He's got to find someone to look after the dog before he can focus on the but case. But because you haven't ever had a dog, you don't know how dog-loving readers fret about this. Oh, I know. No, but my wife does. Um, my, my wife's a big pet lover, and although we've never had a dog, we've had cats all, all the time we've been married, and she's the one that pencils in the margin, saying, who's looking after the dog? Why is nobody taking the dog for a walk? Who's feeding the dog? Um, Good on, Miranda. I know, I know. If Siobhan is going here, could she not take the dog with her rather than leave the dog in the flat? I like her style. Um, so that's, I mean, that's all the criticism I get when the book is handed over to Miranda. It's all about making sure that... The dog's uh, all right. Well, I'm glad somebody's right. on the case, as it were. <laughs> um, now, I, I wanted to ask about... Um, this has been a kind of strange period for you. Um, it's been a strange period for everybody, but in terms of you, you're a very disciplined kind of writer in terms of the way the the seasons turn around, when you start writing a book, when it gets published, when you go on the book tour and all of that. There's a kind of synchronicity to all of that in your life. And now this year it's quite different because you're, you're editing this new book um, in the middle of a lockdown. How did that work out? Um, I, I was fortunate to the extent that I'd done the research after the first draft. The first draft was written um, up until about the end of January. I started it in November, so November, December, January. So in February, I, once the first draft is done, I then do the research. So February, I drove up to Tongue and Durness and all around there, um, taking a look at um, Thurzo and other places that I thought Rebus would need to visit. And that was just before the lockdown. And the plan was then for me to, to sit in a wee house we've got in Cromarty up past Inverness and do the writing of the second draft. But the lockdown hit. And so the final draft, the kind of second and third drafts were written in Edinburgh during lockdown, which was great. Because all the kind of extracurricular stuff that I'd put in my diary, tours to America, literary festivals, gone. So I could just sit and write, um, which is what writers usually like to do. It's the way it used to be before people wanted us to be touring the world all the time and festivals coming at you all the time. So I got a lot of writing done and the book was edited and, and emailed to the publisher who of course was also on, they weren't in the office, they were at home and everything else, but they could still work because publishing's funny that way. What we didn't have of course was bookshops. 
So any books mm -hmm. you had being published in that period were difficult. Westwind was coming out in paperback. That was very difficult during the lockdown because there were almost no bookshops open and suddenly the dreaded Amazon are, are sucking up all the sales, um, which was really frustrating. What it did mean was there's one tiny wee bit of research I couldn't do. Um, I had left until the end the stuff that had to be done in Edinburgh. Yeah. So that would be easy. I can do that just by walking out the front door. You but one thing couldn't... I needed to do was go to the airport and check the uh, car rental place at the airport or the various car rental places. And of course, I wasn't allowed to travel that far from home while the book was being edited and everything. It's more than five miles, so, of course. More yeah. than five miles from where I live. So um, I had to make that bit up. So one of these days I'll find out how that's, accurate that's After it is. all, what fiction writers do. <laughs> I know. The but somebody thing... will come along and go, I think you'll find that if you go to the, <laughs> if you go to the Hertz rental place, yes. it's not in that part of the um, terminal, it's in this part of the terminal. For sure they will. The other thing, though, about uh, writers, in my experience, um, and, and I know this applies to you as well as, um, as well as most of the writers I know, that while it's grand to be locked in and locked down and, and having nothing disturbing your concentration and nobody wanting you to go hither and yon, that's all grand, but it doesn't mean you can't go down the road for a pint. That was sore. That still is sore because the Oxford bar is still closed. Is it? Oh, yeah. You can't socially distance. It's tiny. It's the size of this chair. You know, well, the, the idea of socially distancing is just a... I don't know how they'll get round it, if they ever do get round it, but a lot of my favourite bars in Edinburgh are small, old-fashioned bars, and they're all still closed, or the vast majority of them are still closed. Yeah. And even if you do go to a pub, it's just not the same now. You have to book a table, and you've got a time slot, and you can't stand at the bar. There's no crack anymore. There's no milling about of lots of people who are going to give you a joke or a comment or a piece of news or information. I'm getting the impression you're missing the bars more than you're missing I, anything else. Well, I mean, I really am. I mean, I'm a, I've been, ever since I was a teenager, I've been a, a, a person who's, a, who's, that's my hobby, is going to the pub. And on my birthday, my 60th birthday was right in the middle of the lockdown. Um, and uh, I, I picked up a glass and a can of beer and I walked to the Oxford bar my one hour of exercise that day was walking to the Oxford bar, which is 20 minutes from my flat, pouring a glass of beer outside the locked bar, drinking it, and then walking back again. For old time's sake? Just me, for old time's sake. I thought it's going, going to take more than COVID to keep me away from the Oxford bar on my 60th birthday. So <laughs> um, it, was, it was pretty grim. It was pretty grim. And our, our youngest son, who's disabled and in a kind of special facility for disabled people, we've not been able to sit with him on a sofa That's tough. and hug him and touch him since the beginning of March. That's really tough. Um, and his birthday was July, and again, it was had to be done Does at Does he distance. understand the no, reasoning? he doesn't understand at all. And I he's got no concept of two-dimensional, so screens don't mean anything. So the, the idea of doing a, a FaceTime yeah. doesn't work with him. doesn't work, so it's been devastating. How, how can he cope with folk not hugging him? Well, the staff can give him a hug. The staff who are amazing um, give him, you know, they're there 24-7. And they, they give him hugs. But you must be he, desperate to hug him. Oh, of course we are. And he doesn't even get to sit with the other people in his facility. They're all in their individual bedrooms and they only get out for a wee bit of time and they're not allowed to mix with each other. Um, so it's really heartbreaking. And yet, I mean, you know, I mean, it'd be deadly dangerous for people like that who've got, you know, life-threatening conditions sure, or conditions sure. that so make So you can't them, take any chances at no, all? No, no chances at all. You can't. So they, they were the first in it lockdown and they'll be the last out. But it's tough. But he's, you know, he's... Managed to, he's coping fine. How old you know, is he now? He's 20, you said he's 26th birthday. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but I mean, he's coping with it better than we are. 
yeah. I think, because he's still got people around him who love him, and he's still getting his three meals a day. Yeah, and uh, is, I don't imagine he's, he's a man after a pint anyway. No, no booze. I wanted to... Uh, I want to go on to the other, the other book, Ian, but before we do, if I can just stick with Rebus again for a minute, because uh, he said many different incarnations. So tell me about the latest Inspector Rebus. Yeah, well, um, you know, a lot of people had been sent to me through Twitter and whatever. A lot of folk had said, How's, how would Rebus cope with the lockdown? Um, because they know he's got COPD mm. and he loves the pub. Um, and and it, it got me thinking. And then, fortuitously, the National Theatre of Scotland got in touch and said, we're putting together these wee plays. Scene for survival. Plays, five or ten minutes, monologues. Um, do you want to do one? And so I got to actually deal with that, what was inside my head, how would Rebus cope with this? And it's a kind of parallel universe um, in which Rebus hasn't quite moved flats yet because I wanted him to be isolated. So I've got him stuck two stories up in his tenement in Marchmont in Edinburgh. And the person who's bringing him food and stuff is Siobhan Clark, his one-time one colleague, and she is not letting him out. So she's the one taking Brillo for a walk. Because he's got COPD, she's determined he's not going to step outside. So she brings him pars food parcels and booze and everything else and it's newspapers. It's a pretty starry rebus, this one, though, isn't it? Well, here's the thing is that they said to me, I mean, I wrote the script and I sent it to them, and they said, we've got Cora Bissett to direct it. And I went, brilliant, I love Cora's work, that's great. And we're approaching um, Brian Cox. And I went, really? Is he no a wee bit busy? Um, and then he said, Brian Cox has said yes. Uh, now, the thing is, he's in upstate New York and he's in his cabin. Uh, so he's going to have to do it from there. So Cora was somewhere, I don't know if she was in Glasgow or London or somewhere, and I was in Edinburgh, and Brian Cox was in the cabin with his wife. And he'd, bless him, he'd set it up, he'd, he'd dressed the set. Yeah. So he'd made the wee kitchen look as much like a marchman, an Edinburgh kitchen as he could. <laughs> he had a bottle of whiskey here. He'd even bought dog food. He does not own a dog, but he bought dog food. To Plus put he's a Dundonian, so he's uh, not exactly that old fee with marchman. <laughs> and he'd put a map of Scotland up in the background. And he just did it, he just got it. Um, yeah. And it was a very, it was a lovely, um, intimate portrait of, of this man in his late 60s with health issues who's trying to survive this crisis. Um, Probably iniquitous to ask you which of the rebuses that have been on screen you prefer. It's a tough one because I, I've never watched the TV shows. I don't never? watch. No, I don't watch the TV. I mean, it was one on the other night, and I still won't watch it. Um, I don't want actors to really interfere with my what's inside my head. Um, I listen to the radio, which is Ron Donaghy. Ron Donaghy does them on radio, and that's yeah. fine. And I've watched the various iterations on in the theatre. Um, and that's been fine. Again, Ron did it in the theatre latterly, uh, and there might be another theatre, there might be another stage play coming up next year, if <laughs> if, if theatres the, reopen. If theatres are still with us. Yeah, yeah, I mean there is a script that's that's um, I think pretty pretty well good to go. Um, but no, Rebus exists best inside my head and inside readers' heads. I think there always there's always a wee bit of you know when the ones on the telly, folk will say, oh, which one is it? Is it Ken Stott? Is it John Hanna? Um, you know. Did Brian Cox, is, Brian Brian Cox, Cox is, is so good, though, for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is he's a, a man of a certain age as well um, and still wanting to work and still working very successfully, in fact. Yeah, I know, and I've not managed to see Succession yet. I really, it's, on my, it's on my shopping list. Yeah, but um, we were having a wee chat about this beforehand. It turns out that you're a man with, with um, <laughs> how shall we put this delicately, a kind of old-fashioned telly. Console telly. 
Um, yeah, we've not got a lot of, we've not got bells and whistles TV, we've not got big packages for, you know, full of this, that and the other, lots of sports, lots of movies, all that. When we moved, I, I didn't think we were going to have a TV. We, I thought we're not taking a TV with yeah. us and we didn't take a TV with us, but there was a TV in the flat when we moved in. So we've kind of kept it. But I watch very little TV. Um, I, what I found, what I was hoping to find during lockdown is that I would get a lot more reading done. But and in fact, my, well, my focus has kind of gone. I found I could write fluidly. I could write fine. But yeah. sitting down to read the Brothers Karamazov, you know, I just thought this is the time to do it. If you're ever going to do it, do it now. Um, remembrance of things past. No, I went back to familiar books. I went back to um, Muriel Spark, you know, crime novels that I knew and loved, um, Dickens, Bleak House, you name it. I was reading familiar stuff. That's interesting because a lot of writers, a lot of creatives, in fact, um, I've said ubiquitously this, this last few weeks and months, they've said, well, this is the time I'm going to do, I'm going to write this, I'm going to compose that. This is the time when I've, I've got no excuses anymore, I can really get stuck into what I've always wanted to do. And it hasn't happened for them, but it obviously hasn't affected your writing capacity at all. Well, the one thing that I've determined I'm not going to do, although it was tempting, of course, is write a COVID novel. Um, I mean, it was one day I was cycling, cycling down Princess Street, the main street in Edinburgh, at 5pm on a Friday, only because it could be done. Yeah. There was nobody there. There was one bus with nobody on it, and me and my wife, and that was it. And we were cycling past the uh, Balmoral Hotel, five-star hotel at the end of Princess Street. And, of course, it was all boarded up. And it got me thinking about any number of heists that could be happening while all these Behind buildings are boarded doors. up. Anything could be happening. And then there was a guy went up to the door and knocked, and he was a delivery guy with a wee parcel, just a wee package. And the door was opened, and of course there's a kind of watchman in there, there's somebody yeah. in there looking after the premises. And it got me thinking of all these characters in these weird situations. Well, you're not going to do anything about it. Five-star hotel to yourself. No, because I think there's going to be a glut of them. Don't you think there's going to be a glut of these? I mean, what I think is, and I've thought this a lot about other crises, crime writers are at their best, specifically crime writers, when the dust has settled. When the dust has settled, give us a few years, to cogitate. So and five years down the line is the time to write Then the you might nibbles. get it. It's like when there's times of, of say, um, political and social upheaval, um, such as in Northern Ireland during the 70s, yep. you got almost no crime fiction. The crime fiction came along big time after the peace process to explain to us what had just happened. What had happened, yeah. And I think that's where, when crime fiction is at its best. Well, I mean, that's, that takes us neatly on to the other book we're going to talk briefly about tonight, because West Wind, and I said rather uh, unkindly that it arose without trace, but it did kind of rise without trace in 1990, and you'd started it three years earlier. And, I mean, what, first of all, what persuaded you that it was a good idea to have it republished? I mean, as I say, it's very prescient with the, the stuff in it, but... I, I didn't have a lot of love for the book. I'd kind of convinced myself it wasn't very good because people kept telling me it wasn't very good. I kept changing it and changing it and changing it to satisfy other people. Editors came and went and would have a new idea. Um, agents, publishers, everybody seemed to have a, a say in how, you know, in how this book should be. And I felt like a very small cog in a very big machine. And I fell out of love with it. And I hadn't looked at it for years. And I'd say, I mean, Orion, my current publisher, had said years ago, look, we'll publish it if you want us to publish it. And I said, no. And then two things happened. One is that I had a gap year. I had a year when I didn't have a book coming out, which was last year. And the other thing was somebody on Twitter said, look, I read that. It's all right. Yeah. It's all right. And I went, really? And I happened to have a copy on the shelf. And I picked it off the shelf one day and started reading it. 
And because it's so long, it had been 30 years since I'd read it. I'd forgotten the plot, I'd forgotten the characters, I'd forgotten everything. And, and so yet there's I, so many contemporary references. I know, and I read it as a reader going, that's kind of interesting that you've, yeah. you've got that in it. And I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff in there. There's a lot of stuff about central locking in yeah, cars. Yeah, yeah, and, and cassettes. I, and I, I mean, I took out about 11 references. I must have been totally infatuated with this notion that you could turn a key <laughs> in a lock of a car and all the locks dropped. And it was a key. It was a key. It wasn't, it wasn't remote lock, central yeah. locking. It was central locking, but I just thought, wow. It was mentioned about 12 times. And modem, somebody explains a modem to somebody. Yep. and they're really noisy you know when a modem played, is connected and they played cassette tapes and, and it's it. cassette tapes you put into a cassette record and all that that stuff's all really old hat however when you but the, poli the politics and the geopolitics the politics are, are, um, are very now I mean yeah. America American troops being brought out of Europe a president who's kind of entrenching and, and become an isolationist and isolationist yeah. policies everywhere and Europe falling out of America and Britain kind of caught in the middle and the Soviet Union, because it still was, kind of rubbing its hands with glee, yeah. going, we can make some mischief from all of this. But on a more personal level, you know, I, was, I, was, I mean, you wrote a new prologue for the book, which, and it was a very honest prologue, um, because you said in it, at the time you wrote Westman, because the first rebus had come out and it hadn't, you know, set the head on fire either, um, although probably has now. But so you're at a stage in your life where you're still doing a full-time job, you're, you're, you're learning your trade as a writer, you're trying to keep that confidence thing going, and you say that you were beginning to have serious doubts about how good you were. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, completely, because the books weren't selling. Um, I was always on the verge of being dumped by publishers or I was jumping between publishers. And I wanted to write something that would allow me to become a full-time writer. I'd tried Crime, hadn't worked. I'd tried the spy novel, Watchmen, hadn't worked. I thought I'll try a thriller. These books that I see on railway station bookshelves and airport bookshelves, I'll try a big, fat, techno thriller. Uh, maybe that's where the money is failed again. But in that same year, 1990, I also got um, a, a publisher interested in a follow-up Rebus novel. Basically, the publisher who published the first Rebus novel said to me, whatever happened to that guy? I liked that guy. There was more you can do with him. And it was a relief to have somebody on my side and yep. somebody who convinced me that maybe I was, maybe that was the right book or the right kind of book to write. And it allowed me to go back to writing about Edinburgh again, rather than setting books Whatever. I'm interested in, in West Wind, though, the, the, the characters in it. I mean, there's myriad characters in it, uh, and, and there's some very nasty myriad characters mm -hmm. in it. But I'm interested in the names that you chose, because um, one of the, the protagonists is called Dreyfus, and one of them is called Esther Hazy, and, and they were both names from the, from the Dreyfus affair. I mean, mm -hmm. did you, was that deliberate? Yeah, that was, that was deliberate. I'm sure it was deliberate. Um, there, was, there was a few names taken from here and there. Uh, I've got a feeling the, um, and I'm going to forget his name now, but the kind of MI5 guy, MI6 guy, um, masquerading as a, as a um, diplomat. Uh, he's, he was definitely... Oh, no, Villiers. I, he was definitely based on one of the characters from uh, Edge of Darkness. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, the two, there were two guys in Edge of Darkness, these two kind of dowdy yeah. um, uh, MI5 operatives. I think he was based on one of them. Uh, there were, it was lots of stuff taken from everywhere, you know. It was, uh, and then there was this female assassin, and the female assassin was based on a comic book called Electra Assassin. And she's like this really steely, cold-blooded assassin. But she's but she's gorgeous. She's beautiful. She's devastating. But that's but that's again prescient because you know I mean you wrote that as I say where are we now? That's 30 years ago. And since you know one of the big hits in the last few years was Killing Eve. Yeah, Villanelle. Yeah, yeah starring Villanelle, the the, mm. the arch assassin, and Harry, Harry stroke Harriet from from Westwind makes. Villanelle seemed quite cuddly, really. <laughs> yeah, she. I mean, she's a, she's a, she's a, an extraordinary character. When I was reading that, I was quite scared of her. 
when I was reading the book again, you know, in preparation for, for re-releasing it. And um, yeah, the characters were pretty vivid. The, and, and it was that, it's the old, um, the old trope, isn't it, of an in innocence abroad. It's innocents who are caught up in some huge conspiracy. Yep. And at the time I was hugely into Graham Greene. I mean, I thought my spy novel Watchmen was basically the human factor. Graham Greene's the human factor, um, rewritten. And I loved the fact that he would take an innocent and place him in an extraordinary situation. Um, and of course, the thriller used to depend on that. It wasn't always very skilled operatives working for Mission Impossible and stuff like that. It was your Richard Hannes. Yeah, who suddenly Richard find Hannes himself in the middle of something. Find themselves in the middle of a conspiracy and they've got to use their wits to get out of it. They're suddenly accused of murder, but they didn't do it. But the only way they can convince the authorities is to find who did do it. Well, there's quite a high body count. They don't all get out of it. They don't all get out of it. Shh. They don't all get out of it. Sorry, 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 and but you can, you can, you can buy uh, the, the book, folks. I mean, in fact, I can tell you, you can buy the book if you go online to shop.edbookfest.co.uk. That's shop.edbookfest.co.uk, and that will get you the paperback of Westwind. The one thing you can't buy is Song for the Dark Times, Sadly which not. doesn't come out until October. It's going to be a strange, um, a strange old tour when that comes out. It certainly is. Um, well, well, let's hope you can go on tour in October. One thing about, um, um, I, I, I saw. An interview you did in a previous book festival when there was real people in the audience, and um, you said that you were quite superstitious about having five words in the title because every time you had five words in the title, it went straight to number one, and so you you, you really 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 wanted five words in the title. I can't help noticing, and arithmetic's not my strong yep. suit, Mr. Rankin. Yep. I can't help noticing that that's got six words. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. I did I did one four four word book, um, rather be the devil. And it got to number two because Lee Child changed his publication date. And so I was determined after that the books would have five word titles. My publisher, so I, when I gave it to my publisher, in fact, I had a completely different title at the start. At the start, it was called A Bullet to the Soul, I think. A Bullet to the Soul, five words. Um, and then very quickly thereafter, I saw this quote from Bertolt Brecht. And believe it or not, back in September, October last year, I thought we were living through dark times. Compared with you know this. with Brexit and with Trump yeah, yeah. and everything else, I thought the and the rise of the right around the world, yep. specifically in Europe and Eastern Europe, the rise of the Little right. Little did we know and racism and, and anti-Semitism coming back to the fore and everything. I thought these are very dark times, and then I came across that quote from Bertolt Brecht: "Will there be singing in during you know? Will there be music in the dark times? Yes, there will be songs about the dark times. A song for the dark times, six words. Originally, when I said to my publisher, this is what it will be called. It was called." Um, a song for dark, dark times. times. And then they went, no, we prefer a song for the dark times. And you suggested to me backstage, it should just have been song for the dark times. I don't know, we bounced it around quite a lot. I also think that given the number of, um, given the number of books you've shifted for them, they might have taken your word for it. No, these things go through committees, otherwise they're not earning their money, are they? So um, I gave in on that one, but yeah, six words, let's wait and see what happens. Let's see if I can break my voodoo. So what happens to Mr. Rankin's Dark Times from here on in? Who knows? I don't, I, I genuinely don't know. Um, I mean, having delivered this book and it will come out in October, I then should have another year off. I'm actually between contracts. I don't, I don't have a book contract at the moment. Um, I'm sure I'm, somebody out there I've is been, about no, to. Well, I've been a bit resistant. I've been a bit resistant because the plan that my wife had, having downsized, we're now in a kind of flat we can lock and leave. Yep. Um, her plan was we do a lot more travelling than we've been doing. Well, we've still got the use of our legs, 
you know. And then, and then in that precise moment, of course, there's very few places you can travel to. Absolutely. So that's been knocked on the head somewhat. So maybe I'm going to just going to have to sit down and write another book. And will there be another rebus? Um, I don't know. I genuinely don't. I've not got any ideas at the moment. I think I won't start thinking about that until October. No, September, October, maybe. I've got another month. I've got another month to think about it. The one thing I won't be doing is going on the road. I mean, normally I've got a big UK tour, a physical tour, a big American tour, sometimes Canada or Australia, New Zealand. None of that's going to happen. It'll be a virtual tour. If it's anything, it'll be events like this. And you gave me the impression, um, though, that you found some of that quite tedious. I don't much like traveling, I'll be honest with you. Um, and it's quite frustrating. You spend your whole day on trains or planes or taxis or bus or cars, and then you stand up for an hour in front of an audience, knackered, and entertain them for an hour. And then you're supposed to sit and sign books after that. And then you go to bed in your hotel, wake up at 6 a.m. and do it all over again. Uh, Which presumably is why you like the Edinburgh International Book Festival, because you can just absolutely. stroll along the road. I walk, I walk to the book festival site, I sit in the yurt, as you suggested, every day, all day, and, and all the writers I know and a lot of writers I don't know walk through the door and yeah. we chat or they become friends, we have a discussion, we get, we get to exchange ideas, it's a wonderful melting pot. Um, and not just that, readers as well, you know, you, you wander around the, the square and you're always meeting readers or you walk along George Street, stop to get a drink or a meal, there's always readers sitting there, people chatting, people discussing the books, the events they've just seen. Um, I, do, I do have to say though that these online festivals, I've done two or three now and they're, they're not bad. I mean, I've done it in the audience. I did one in yeah. the audience, a weekend crime festival. And down the side of the screen, you've got all your comments. So the audience are actually talking to each other. And they're not listening to us, Ruth. Of they're not listening they're not. to us. They're talking to each other down the side of the screen and, and, and maybe chipping in a question now and again that we might get access to. Um, but it's, but it, you know, it's very collegiate and it's very accessible. Because with the best will in the world, festivals, physical festivals like the Edinburgh Book Festival, Cheltenham, Hay on Wye, are accessible to only a very small number of people. Yeah, people yeah. who can take time off people who can afford to travel here, people who can afford the hotel or the boarding house, people who can afford the tickets. Um, and there's something nice about the ability for folk to be able to chip in. There is, and I, and I think, I mean, I've been watching a lot of the, the Edinburgh Book Festival online as well, and it is, it is terrific, but, um, but there's something about that, that whole physical thing that, that's missing. Just that, There is. Just well, and I mean, for me, of course, you're also missing the book sales. Because folk <laughs> at the end of forget. the event aren't queuing up to get a new book signed from you and well, get to meet you for a few I would minutes. love to tell you that we're going to have lots of questions for you, but because, of, because I'm... The, the, ah, here we are, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, because I'm the technophobe that I Technology. am... Technology. Um, but what I've got, oddly enough, in, in my, in my marvellous little mini-pad here is a list of events rather than a list of questions, so maybe somebody out there can sort it. And meantime, you can ask me another question. Meantime, I can ask you another question. What are you, what are you um, in terms of, of the rest of this year then, if you're not going to go on a book tour, and why don't you, and you're not going to go travelling for all the reasons we've articulated, uh, you could actually sit down and re write another book. I could sit down and write another book, and I may sit down and write another book. I mean, there is a stage play I've been talking to you about a wee bit, and that needs tweaking, probably still needs tweaking a bit. Um, there's um, various short stories. I've got to do a Christmas short story for a magazine, a ghost story, so I'll do that. 
what else have I got? I've got various bits and pieces, introductions to other people's books, there's ideas for comic books. And of course, there's a stage play, which we hope is going to... Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, you never, I never know what's coming around the corner. That's the nice thing about it. I mean, during the lockdown, people have been, you know, I've written an introduction, not an introduction. I've written a piece for a book about the NHS as a, as a fundraiser. Here comes somebody. Somebody's going to come Somebody's and fix it Somebody's going to come and you. sort me. Yeah. But Thank I've, you very I've much. done a, a thing for the, an NHS fundraiser, a book um, put together by Adam Kay, the ex-doctor and writer. Um, uh, He's a very, very funny writer. Yeah, he is. Val McDermott's done a book for, for a homeless charity, yeah. uh, the Homeless World Cup, and I did a short story for that. Um, the other thing you've done, of course, for charity, and, and I noticed the way you, you fixed it in this book, you, you, you allow people to buy their way into being mentioned in the book if they, if they give yeah, money to charity. Yeah, there's a and, and, so you can remember the ones that are in this Yeah, book. well, the, one that, the ones, <laughs> the ones in... in uh, thank you very much. Thank you. The ones in, um, in this book that, wanted to, that bought their way into um, charitable giving in exchange for being featured in your book were, of course, two crime writers. And you managed to give them at least two mentions. Yeah, and I should apologise to them. This, is, this was a, a charity thing a, a year or two back, and the winners, the biggest bidders, were Lee Child and Karen Slaughter. And they said, you've got to put us in your next book. And I went, dear God, I can't put you in as real people, and I can't have cops called Karen Slaughter well, and quite. Lee Child. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. So I managed to finesse it that the Edinburgh Book Festival brought them to Edinburgh for a special one-off event at the Usher Hall, which they filled of course. But I put in about half a dozen references to them. Yeah. My editor said, look, take some of these out. It's well, ridiculous. Well, no, I think you should go back to them and ask for more money. Uh, yeah, I put in at least, <laughs> a, it's about three, re they're referenced about three times and Rebus and Siobhan Clark do get signed books from them. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Siobhan because that brings us to the first question here. Who is, uh, this is from Fiona and she's asking, have you ever thought of Siobhan as the natural successor to Rebus and, and, and you might write a series with her as the main character? I have. Um, many, many times I've thought that she could carry a book. She's a strong enough character in her own right. She's got her own presence, her own charisma. Um, I've just not quite found a story for her yet. She gets half, a, she gets half this book. She's, she's very... Um, I mean, we've not really talked about that. We've talked about Rebus up north looking... She, she figures very daughter. prominently. But yeah, there's this kind of whole Saudi student has been murdered in a, the wrong part of town. What was he doing in the wrong part of town? He's, he's almost like royalty. He's, a very, he's part of a very rich Saudi family. Um, Siobhan and Malcolm Fox are, are, are working that case eventually. Um, so she gets quite a big part of this book. Um, I've just not quite found enough for her to is do it or a story I, that feels I like I trust it's story. not because it's a woman. No, it's not. It used to be. I just mean, is it, would it be more difficult for you to write a Yeah, it used to be, Ruth. Honestly, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't confident about writing, writing a female character at length. And then as I introduced Siobhan and gave her more to do in the series, um, crime writers, women crime writers and women cops would say, oh, I like her, she's a good character, keep yeah. going. So that gave me a wee bit more confidence. Yeah. There's no tradition, as you know, of men writing well about women in crime fiction specifically back in the day. Well, um, well, we'll maybe argue about that later, but let me take another couple of questions. John Kay is asking how you came up with the name Rebus in the first place for the main character. Um, if you look in the dictionary, uh, a Rebus is a picture puzzle. And there used to be one in the Sunday Post newspaper every week when I was a wee kid. I didn't know then it was, that's what a rebus was, but it's a wee picture puzzle. It's a, it's a series of drawings with letters added or removed to the word they're depicting that create a secret message. And in the first rebus novel, he's getting sent picture puzzles, basically things that should mean something to him, but aren't. Um, and so I gave him a name that actually means what's happening to him in the book. I thought it's clever. I was an English lit student. I was doing a PhD in semiotics and stuff. I thought, yeah. here's a clever, here's a smart thing to do. This will mean the book's taken seriously by the literary establishment. 
Um, and then I discovered Rebus is a, is a Polish surname. And so fairly late on in the series, we get to find out that Rebus comes from Polish stock. And that actually has a wee part to play in the new book. Because the new yes, book, the story up north revolves around internment camps in World War II. And, um, Did you get a chance to see one when you were up there? The remains of the one, one, I mean. The one, yeah, the one that I invented in, in Naver is completely invented, but there's, there's a few, there's Kilt, is it Kilty Bragan? There's, there's one or two that are open as tourist attractions that I've been to, and there's a few <laughs> more that still exist. That's sick tourist attraction. Well, you know what I mean, they're kind of left as monuments, but you can go and visit them, yeah. uh, run no, by no, historic No, no, but it's Scotland just when you think who we incarcerated in and, Yeah, but you know what, it, we don't, we shouldn't, especially at this time in our, in our history, be forgetting these things that we, because we were told to mistrust or because we as human, because human nature led us to mistrust people who were not the same as us, we locked them up in time the of others, war. Yeah. So we locked up our neighbours, the people that ran the deli, the people that ran the ice cream parlour, the Italians, the Chinese, the you name it, the Eastern Europeans, the Germans, we locked them up. Yeah. And the Isle of Man became one huge prison camp, one huge internment camp. Um, and, and, it was, and doing the research for that was a real pleasure because it was a part of history I didn't know very much about. And I thought there's resonances between that and where we are now. And yet, of course, there was a tremendous number of Polish war heroes who... Absolutely. But you know what? I mean, listen, I better not get into trouble here, but a lot of the, um, the Poles were locking up their own folk. Yeah. Because Sikorsky, who was in charge of, yeah, yeah, of the yeah, Polish yeah. troops, was locking up dissidents, was locking up politics. Wrong kind of pole. The wrong kind of pole, people who weren't of, his, of his, his thinking. And so they were all getting incarcerated and stuff. And you're going, wait a minute, you know. And there was a lot of tension. And Poles were, were you know, um, put up in front of firing squads. And it's ironic, isn't it, when you think about it, there's a sort of circular tour of all of this because before um, Brexit and all of that, the Highlands were repopulated with, with Poles because so many came to work in the hospitality oh, industry. absolutely. And, you know, in the 60s when I was growing up in Fife, you know, half my classmates had East European surnames. Yeah. They were as Scottish as you and me, but their family had moved here just before or, just, or during or just after the war. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take some more questions here. We've got Lynn C. says, um, I'm interested in how you've depicted Rebus's relationship with the women over the years. Here we go again. It seems that the deepest has been with Siobhan. Was that your intention? I'm not sure. That the, it depends what you mean by deepest, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I mean, he's had, I, in the first book, he's divorced, but he's still quite close to his wife and daughter. He sees quite a lot of them. Um, he then settles down with a doctor called Patience, but she had no patience. Um, she didn't last too long. He's had other folk. I'm, Difficult man to live with. I like with. Deborah Quant, the pathologist who he's been with for the past three books. I didn't find much of a role for her in this book, specifically because Rebus isn't in Edinburgh. No, but friends with benefits sounds like the kind of relationship he's best at. Yeah, and her too. I think it suits them both. They're both kind of busy people with their own separate lives and they quite like it that way. They're very different. They couldn't move in together. They've got such very different ways of living. Um, Siobhan... I mean, I, often I've thought of her as a surrogate daughter because yeah. his daughter has been out of the picture for Except so many years. Except he's got years. one of these. Well, he has. And I mean, that's one of the things I was enjoying or one of the, 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 the ones, things that reasons I wanted to write this book was to look at that relationship because I hadn't looked at it for a long time. How does he feel now? He's a grandfather, for example. Yeah. He's had very little to do with his granddaughter. And that was quite a scratchy relationship without giving too much away when he, when he, when he, when he gets reunited with them. Absolutely. And that, again, that keeps me on my toes. People sometimes think, how do you keep a long series fresh? 
when you've got the same set of characters, but they're changing, their lives are evolving. Sure. His relationship with women is evolving. He's getting, his health is evolving. Everything is changing in, with this guy. So when I sit down to write a new Rebus novel, it is almost like a new character is standing before me. Um, a new set of circumstances for me to explore. And of course, the fact that his daughter hasn't been around for so long means that you can flesh her out almost from scratch in this one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and her, her partner, who we've, we've seen mention of in various books down the years, but we've never met, um, we get a chance to find out a bit more about him and about their relationship and what's happened in his daughter's life. Problem with that is how much do you tell the reader about previous stuff that's happened in books without confusing them? Yeah. So it's a, it, as you were saying, and thanks for saying it, the first few pages of the book are doing quite a lot of lifting. Yeah. They're trying to introduce yeah. a lot of characters and the fact that things have changed in Rebus's life. And now he's about to leave all that behind and go north. Right. Now let's take another one from Mark, Mark, Mark S. Um, <laughs> this will appeal to you, I think. Go on. What are Rebus's top three pubs in Edinburgh? Oh, geez. Three. Um, well, I mean, the Oxford Bar would be number one. Obviously. Uh, obviously. He probably goes to Bennett's next to the King's Theatre in Toll Cross. Um, it's, not a, it's not that big a walk from where he lives. He would like the Abbotsford, I think, on Rose Street. Uh, he would like Kay's Bar. He would like Clark's Bar. You're only Bar. allowed three. Stop. I know, I know, I know. But let's stop at that then. Let's stop with those first three that I mentioned. Okay, but and, and there's, I'm, I'm liking the next question because uh, it's from Carlin and she says, is there any music Rebus likes that you don't? And we never really got into you as the, uh, the music side of you because like, there's so many men of a certain age that I know that are, who still think that they've been cheated out of being a rock star. Absolutely. And half of them are crime writers. <laughs> half of them are crime writers and women too. Um, yeah, we, we do. We are cheated. I was, I was in a band when I was 17, 18, and I wish I'd stayed in a band. And no, I'm you back, don't. I'm kind of back in a band again, but only... only As a vocalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've been, we've been not done much for a long, long time. Anyway. Um, Rebus, what Rebus he, likes I mean, and you he, don't... No, he's, a, he's a slightly different generation from me. So I've always got to make sure that it is his musical taste. There's a lot I listen to that he wouldn't listen to. There's not much that he listens to that I wouldn't listen to. So the Stones and Van Morrison and Rory Gallagher and all that, fine. Um, he doesn't listen to nearly as much prog as I would probably listen to. Um, but in this new book, A Song for the Dark Times, the, the game that I play is that Siobhan has made him a, a CD, she's burnt him a CD of music to chill him out, to make him think, to let him relax and everything um, for his new flat. That's right, and he's playing it in the car, And he take, it's the only thing he takes in the car when he drives up north is this CD, which she has titled Songs for the Dark Times. Um, and is it, I'm going to do a playlist for it. I'm going to do a playlist and put it on Spotify. If I can do it, I don't know whether I can. A Rebus do that or not. playlist. A Rebus playlist. All the stuff from the book. Yeah. So all the stuff. No, I, a Siobhan playlist, because yeah. it's music that Siobhan thinks Rebus should be listening to. Whether he likes it or not. Whether he likes it or not. And of course, he's, he's got no choice because it's the only one in the car. <laughs> he actually stops at a, a service station on the way north and says, do you still sell CDs? And he looks at him like he's mad. <laughs> Sweet old-fashioned thing. Said, you... She said it's all Bluetooth these days. <laughs> and he says whatever that is, yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's go to um, Elaine O. She says, I'm intrigued. A hero who's been forced into retirement. I'd like to see more characters like this from all writers. As I know to my cost, retirement raises some complex emotions and anxieties. How did you research the impact that retirement has on active minds? That's really good. Yeah, I mean, and I, to be honest with you, I'd have to think hard on that. I don't know, except, you know, I'm of an age, I'm 60, where a few of my um, people I went to school with are retiring now. 
or, or being made to retire or losing their jobs yep. and being given packages with no expectation they'll manage to find another job. Um, so that's, that's one thing that COVID is going to yeah, bring into sharp focus. I know. I mean, it's true. I mean, he's a very good old school friend of mine who I know and see a fair amount of, and he's taken redundancy um, because of COVID. He's thinking, well, it just—it was the thing that made him jump. He's wanted to jump for a while, but it made him jump. It was just the notion of this COVID. That's thing. a wee bit different, though, from somebody who has been furloughed and then there's no job at the end of it. Absolutely, and there's going to be a lot of that going on. I mean, I've, I'm already meeting people who are saying, "I've just lost my job." Um, people that I know well in Edinburgh who are not going to get their jobs back. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. With Rebus, I mean, I have to tell you that Song for the Dark Times a couple of days ago was number one on Amazon in, in uh, retirement and uh, retirement and money planning under that section uh, of book buying, retirement and money planning. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that you use that book as a, a, a template for how to plan your retirement, really. Neither would I. No. Um, and neither would Rebus. And neither would Rebus. The thing about Rebus is he can't retire. He can't. He is a cop, a detective to his very bones. And so he has kept all the case files illegally. Yeah. And they're all in his spare bedroom now. That's another thing, of course, that's... I mean, I'm just trying to remember what the name of it is. You, you will know the, the series of cold, cold cases, mm -hmm. the, the cops, the cops on TV. Of course, you yeah, don't yeah, watch yeah. much TV. Yeah, line of line of duty. No, 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 no. These are retired cops. Oh yeah, old back. tricks, old new tricks, old tricks. New tricks. Yeah, yeah. New yeah. tricks. Yeah. Now, I mean, they're all rebuses in a in a sense. Yeah, yeah, they are. And um, I, I I hadn't watched it when I when I put rebus in a cold case unit a few quite a few books ago now. But yeah, I think they play it for laughs in that show, don't they? I'm not sure. It's totally serious. Well, there's quite a lot of weight in it, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, um, Ian, but, but let's let's stay on the music theme for a minute. Um, uh, Craig wants to know whether you listen to music when you write or whether or not it inspires you to write. I'm not sure it inspires me to write, but I've always got music playing in the background when I write. I mean, I was writing today, I can't tell you what, but I was writing today and I had some Tangerine Dream playing in the background and some Brian Eno. It's got to be instrumental music. It's just, a, it's very, very quiet. It's just something to create a wee bubble that I can sit in and write in. Um, jazz you, is good for that. Because words would be intrusive. Oh, words would be, I'd be listening to the words. I'd be listening to, even reading a book, I can't do it if I've got, if there's somebody singing words. So yeah, music's always playing and there are like a dozen albums that are kind of totemic. They're the ones that will always get me kick-started if I'm having trouble with a book. Okay, well, we'll have to leave the questions now, sadly, because we're out of time, but um, uh, a song for the Dark Times is going to be out in... October. October. And, uh, but as I said earlier, you can already buy West Wind now at the Edinburgh Book Festival bookshop, which is shop.edbookfest.co.uk. But meanwhile, many thanks, Ian Rankin. Thank you very much, Ruth Wisher. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.